The biggest threat to Obamacare. This is Industry Focus. Hello and welcome to Industry Focus Healthcare Edition. This is Christine Hargis from the Financials Edition of Industry Focus, filling in for Michael Douglas as your host today. But don't worry, all familiarity is not lost as I've got foolish healthcare analyst Todd Campbell here on the line with me. Hey, Todd. Hi, Christine. For a second there, I thought that I was uh, going to be talking about bank stocks today. Yeah, no worries. We'll uh, we'll we'll stick within the the healthcare realm. Excellent. Don't let me do anything else. So our focus today, keeping it in healthcare, is something you've been seeing in the news lately quite a bit, uh, namely the Supreme Court case King v. Burwell, which has to do with the Obamacare subsidies. So I figure we'll kick off just starting uh, talk a little bit about like what is Obamacare, um, how's it doing so far, how many people are involved, what is this whole subsidy issue. Todd, do you want to lead off talking about the purpose of Obamacare? Sure, absolutely. Most people are probably a little bit familiar with Obamacare at this point. Um, you know, essentially what we're talking about is, is a law that was signed in the Affordable Care Act uh, in a bid to reduce the number of people who are uninsured, uh, with the thinking being that if you can get people care, uh, continuous care throughout their lifetime, they're less likely to develop really expensive chronic care conditions uh, like heart disease or to end up in emergency rooms for things that could easily have been treated at a doctor's office. And, you know, so far, obviously, we're two years into, um, we just finished up our second enrollment period. Um, You know, more people signed up this time than they did the last time, and the uninsured rate continues to drop. So on that measure, um, Affordable Care Act is doing what it was set out to do, Um, A big question, though, remains on, you know, what will Obamacare look like in the years to come? Right. And following up on that uninsured rate, it's at its lowest since 2008 when Gallup first started tracking it, which is actually really impressive and and stands to show that Obamacare is kind of doing something right so far. You know, regardless of whether you stand on the issue of if this law is a good thing or not, if its purpose is to get more people health insurance, then it is doing that. And the the aftermath of having more people have access to health care is that it should bring costs down. And so far, we're starting to see that as well. And it makes sense. You know, if you have a greater portion of the U.S. population signed up for medical insurance, then you have more people spreading the cost base around, especially as you enroll more younger, healthy people who aren't going to be as expensive to the insurance companies as maybe some more elderly or, or sicker people. And so by that measure, the uninsured rate being quite low, it goes to say that the law actually might be doing a very good job of keeping cost inflation modest. But as you mentioned, it's we still have yet to see where it's going to, to go after this, especially in the case that we have already brought up, King v. Burwell. What's going on with that? King v. Burwell continues um, a trend, or if you will, of... of It is aimed at basically looking at this law and um, dismantling it. I mean, essentially what the goal here for King v. Barrowell is, is to go out there and be able to say, okay, does the federal government have the right to mandate that Americans go out and get insurance coverage? And what they discovered in looking through the language of the bill was that there is a part of the bill in which um, talks about subsidies and offering subsidies and paying subsidies uh, to American uh, consumers who sign up on the healthcare.gov exchange. 
that calls into question whether or not the government does have the right to give subsidies out to states that didn't start their own health care insurance exchange. So essentially, you've got two, a situation where we passed the ACA, and the ACA said, okay, everybody has to get health insurance. But some states didn't want to set up their own health insurance exchange for their people who live in that state to sign up. So healthcare.gov was created in order to allow people who live in those states to go onto the marketplace and pick a plan and receive the subsidized uh, uh, payments that reduce their cost. So the question again is, does the government have the right to mandate that you have coverage? And the way that they're attacking that is simply by saying, okay, can um, the government offer subsidies to people who are enrolling in healthcare.gov in states that didn't set up their own exchange? Exactly. And just for some context on how much, how many, how many states we're talking about here, that, those are 34 36. states. Yeah, I'm sorry, 34. It was 36 originally. They dropped it 34 to other states, went off and did their own thing. But um, yeah, we're talking a lot of states and a lot of people. I mean, of the 11.7 million people who signed up for health insurance in the second enrollment period, 8.8 million people did so through healthcare.gov. So we're talking about a very substantial number of people. It makes sense. I mean, in theory, your people are uninsured because they can't afford coverage. So they go to the marketplace, and because they're low income, they get offered a subsidy. Well, that subsidy makes that insurance plan affordable, so therefore they can then get insurance. So the big question is, at the end of this month, when the Supreme Court finally weighs in with its decision on this case, will they say that, yes, subsidies are okay, or no, subsidies are not okay. If they say subsidies are okay, then it's business as usual. If they say subsidies aren't okay, then, wow, that throws a big curveball at Obamacare. It for sure does. And what I find really interesting about this case is that it, it speaks to our, our legal system as a whole in that you can't just go challenge a law and say, hey, I don't like this law. You have to actually have some sort of material interest in it. And so what this actual case is, is for people uh, in Virginia who said that technically by the language of the law, they have standing to argue against it because without these subsidies that were given to them federally, they would have been exempt from the individual mandate requiring them to get health insurance because the cost of the cheapest insurance plan would have exceeded 8% of their income. However, with the subsidies, the subsidized cost was low enough that the plaintiffs were required to purchase insurance. And so they have this material interest in the case. And that's what they're basing this entire thing off of, which even though it's just challenging that one aspect of Obamacare, really stands to derail the entire program. Yeah, what's really interesting, too, is that it's not even this case that is this case wasn't even the reason that this case got to the Supreme Court, if you will, because actually in the district court and in the appeals court, the plaintiffs lost. It was actually Halberg versus Burwell, which went uh, before the D.C. district court that won. And because it won, but King versus Burwell didn't win, that the Supreme Court has to step in now and hear the case and make a decision. And of course, that's one of the Supreme Court's favorite things to do is to reconcile these circuit splits and offer a decision that then will be binding nationwide. Right. And if they come through at the end of the month and they say that, you know, you, you know, you have to follow the language of the law as it's written and it has to be a state set up exchange. Well, then, 
who knows how Obamacare is going to look. I mean, no one wants to have millions of people lose their insurance coverage, but that's really most likely going to happen unless something is done to bridge the gap. Because, again, you're talking about people who are paying less than $100 a month for their insurance, jumping now to having to pay $350 or more per month in insurance. And these are low-income, middle-income uh, individuals. They're, they're most likely not going to be able to pay that bill when it, when it jumps. Exactly. And you can see that the public agrees there. Uh, by a margin of 55% to 38%, more people have said in a new poll by uh, Washington Post and ABC News that the court shouldn't take this action to stop the federal subsidies. Yeah, what's interesting about that is that, I mean, no matter where you fall, it doesn't matter if you're conservative, if you're liberal, or no matter what, more people believe that the subsidies shouldn't be ended than do believe that Obamacare should continue as it is. So I think that no one really wants to take food out of their neighbor's pantry, if you will. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting dynamic because it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on Washington to figure out what to do if the Supreme Court does say no subsidies. So let's talk about what exactly would happen if that were the decision. Uh, wh- where would the, the ripples lead? What would be the aftermath? Well, what's interesting is that there, I guess it depends on what you want your outcome to be. I mean, you could simply, Congress could simply strike that language or rewrite that language and things would just go on as normal. However, that's unlikely because um, Congress is now under the control of conservatives who would prefer to have it repealed. So who knows how that's going to play out? It could be that the conservatives say, you know what, let's push this back beyond 2016, pass legislation that acts as a bridge until 2017. And that way, we'll let the voters decide at the polls who they want as president, and and we'll deal with the issue then. We'll just sort of kick it down the road. Um, That could happen. You could have individual states who go in and set up their own state exchanges. If they do that, then I suppose investors, I mean, we are Motley Fool, we're talking about investing takeaways here too, uh, might want to consider a name like Accenture, uh, which of course designed uh, runs the contract for healthcare.gov and conceivably could be hired by various states to set up their own state exchanges. Um, but I guess the, the, ultimately the, the real losers here, if subsidies are struck down, would be health insurers, because obviously they would lose billions of dollars in premium revenue, uh, and hospitals, which would now be faced with having to write off more care, uh, given that you know more people would be showing up into their ERs without having health insurance. Yeah, and hospitals had been pretty big winners so far, too, with having rising enrollment really helping them to reduce the amount of care that they need to write off. But yeah, most it totals of the, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, yeah, without a doubt. Uh-huh. And, and the, most of the people that stand to lose subsidies are the same people who can't pay for ER visits or chronic care. And so a drop in membership could certainly cause hospital stocks to take a hit. Absolutely. Again, the people who would lose these subsidies are the people who are less, least able to pay for health care services, which is why this whole law was passed in the first place, to try and get them into the system, be able to identify illness early and reduce the, the, the long-term costs associated. So clearly there are going to be ripple effects going out into a bunch of different subsectors of the healthcare industry. I would even throw out there some diagnostic developers, uh, people like like an Orisher, who they make a, a point of care test for diagnosing hepatitis C. If people lose their, their subsidies, lose their insurance, they don't end up getting this test. And then 
that's not good for this company. And, you know, that's also really not good for the insurers, too, because if you don't know that you have hepatitis C, then the liver damage is only going to get worse. Um, I'd also throw out somebody like Intuitive Surgical, who they sell their products to hospitals. If hospitals aren't as profitable, then they're not going to have that spare money to buy these very expensive products. And so there could really be some some far-reaching repercussions. Absolutely. This goes. This will cut across all sectors because theoretically drug demand will fall, uh, uh, medical equipment demand will fall, um, all sectors and sub-industries uh, associated with healthcare will definitely feel the impact. So this is something that investors need to be paying very close attention to as we get further into the month. Absolutely. And uh, so a decision is expected either later this month or maybe in early July. And it's absolutely something to keep an eye on as a healthcare investor and just an investor in general. I mean, you, you don't even know how far these these effects could could ripple to. Folks, be sure to check back with Fool.com for more coverage on King v. Burwell, other healthcare industry news, and for all your other investing curiosities. Todd, thanks so much for your insights today. I'm glad I got to do the show with you. Uh, for The Motley Fool, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, everyone, and Fool on. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. (laughs) 